This podcast is supported by Bank Australia, Australia's first customer-owned bank. Bank Australia invests 4% of its after-tax profits in projects that benefit people, our communities and the planet. To find out more, go to bankost.com.au, where you bank every day does make a difference. And welcome to the Dumbo Feather Podcast, a monthly series where we chat with inspiring, thought-provoking guests who are doing their bit to make the world better. I'm Tegan, the Community and Operations Manager at Dumbo Feather, and this week, in collaboration with our friends at the School of Life, we're hearing from Robin Davidson. Robin is best known as the Camel Lady, a reference to her journey as a young woman crossing the Australian desert with four camels and her dog in 1977. Today, Robin feels like a different person, yet there's one quality that has remained a constant in her life, her ability to adapt to change. Robin sat down in front of a live audience at the School of Life with our publisher, Barry Liberman, to talk about adaptability and how to embrace the flux that is ever-present in our lives. Hi, everyone. It's very unusual for us to have champagne on stage. (laughs) Speak for yourself. (laughs) But there is a reason. And the reason is that we're very lucky tonight to have Robin here with us on her birthday. I thought as a a toast to your wonderful self, we might sing happy birthday. Happy birthday to you, happy birthday to you, happy birthday dear Robin, happy birthday to you. Hip hip, hip hip, hip hip, thank you so much. (laughs) That's the best birthday song I think I've ever heard. Thank you. Officially one of the coolest moments ever. (laughs) We all got to sing happy birthday to Robin Davidson. And also, you know, it needs to be said that this is a pinch me moment for me. I was telling Robin um, I'm one of, I'm serious groupie. And uh, I even asked Robin to sign my copy of Tracks before. And um, tonight, it's it's an honour for me. And uh, tonight is all about adaptability and surrender and the tension between our desire for freedom and the nomadic lifestyle and what our society expects from us in our day-to-day. And I I feel, being a young woman and I was searching for my own place in the world and my own freedom, there was Lawrence of Arabia and then there was you. (laughs) (laughs) Me and Lawrence. Yeah. (laughs) You're cooler. So many people in this room know you, would know you as the camel lady, the woman that crossed the desert with four camels and a dog in 1977. But that was just one chapter in an extraordinary life that you've lived. In what ways are you the same as that young woman who crossed the desert all those years ago? Oh, well, I'm completely different, I think. And I look back at her and... I'm not quite sure 
who she is. I mean, I like her and I admire her. She's sort of like a, a favourite niece or something. <laughs> <laughs> but I think, what a crazy kid. What did she think she was doing? <laughs> um, no, seriously. Um, it's, it's very hard, actually, to honestly and truthfully recall who that young woman was because so many avatars have come up in the years between around that decision that I made so many years ago. The first, of course, was the success of... Well, the success of the journey itself, which suddenly um, uh, made this creature called the Camel Lady and she didn't seem to have much to do with me, but there she was. The second was the artefact of the book. And while, of course, the book is the truest um, rendition of the journey, it is not the journey, it is an artefact. So that's another kind of something that stands between what actually happened and, uh, and how I perceive it now. And thirdly, of course, there's been the film, which is another abstraction yet again. So for me personally, it's been a very complicated relationship to that young woman because of these intervening versions, if you like, or avatars. Um, also, because I hadn't been expecting fame of any kind, I didn't think anyone would be interested, I also had to deal with other people's version of me and largely what I've been doing for the last 30 years is trying to escape the, cam the camel lady. Hmm. And um, now I think, oh, there's worse, there's worse things to be known as. So <laughs> I've given in gracefully, I hope. <laughs> so it's complicated, let's put it that way. Like most things. Like most things. So bear with me while I ask you questions about that stem from that time. Yes. Becoming a reluctant icon of the nomadic lifestyle. Mm. Many people, like myself, felt freed and feel freed by your story. They find their own capacity for adventure in it. Why do you think that is? It's such a wonderful thing. And again, it seemed to have not all that much to do with me. I know it sounds like um, a sort of false modesty or something, but it's, it's really what I think. Um, I think quite unbeknownst to me, I hit some, not just the zeitgeist of the time, but some sort of mythical structure of the journey um, of, you know, overcoming, um, of growing, all of those things. So in a sense, I think tracks is a sort of mythical, mythical structure so that people can, can take from it in, the, in a similar sort of way to how we take from myth and we can use it in our own lives. It seems to be something like that. I mean, God knows the book has got legs. It's, um, it's been going for 30 years and it's really remarkable. But I'm always very delighted when fabulous young people like this say they've been moved or have found the book useful. I don't receive it emotionally because it doesn't seem to have anything to do with me, but intellectually I'm very, very pleased that what I did has proven useful to so many young, particularly young people. I'm going off, off reservation here a bit, but mm. what, if you were to talk about the mm. journey, what would you say is relevant for you to talk about or feels familiar to you when you reflect back to that? Uh, we're calling it a, an adventure. What would you have mm. called it? 
Well, I never would have used that word, but, you know, it's as good a word as any. It was just something that I wanted to do, that I knew I had to do. Um, I wanted to do something big with my life that would pull me together as an individual because it seemed to, I was an extremely, I think, extremely um, inadequate young woman. And so doing something that was so demanding and forced me to grow and grow up and find all these skills and talents that I didn't know I had was, and the funny thing is that it worked, it did the trick. Mm. Um, I felt very much at the end of that journey that I had solved some essential um, problem, if you like, at the core, not a, not, a not a psychological problem, I mean a problem of being, an existential problem, by what I had done. And it's very hard to describe really what that is. Um, but somehow it worked and I got what I needed from it to sort of go on to the next thing, to evolve on to the next thing. That's my sense of it. But of course, you know, the other thing is that each time you look back on your life, you have changed since the last time you looked back on your life. So it's all a matter of perspective. So how does the nomadic life, which you have continued to live... Yes. We were talking mm. just before that you've settled in Victoria for the first time ever. I know. It's pretty weird, isn't it? <laughs> well, I, you know, here I have been espousing nomadism as a... As a, um, as a good mental structure to have in relation to one's life. But suddenly I find myself with not just a house and a garden, but a tiny flat in St Kilda, and both of them are killing me. <laughs> um, look, the wandering life, you know, I have moved around a hell of a lot. Um, partly that was temperamental, partly I was just driven by a really profound curiosity about the world and in a funny sort of way about my own culture because it wasn't until I could get out of Australia and, and learn about the rest of the world did I feel that I had something to test my own um, inherent beliefs against, my, the cultural baggage that I carried. So I think that sort of travel doesn't just teach you about other places, it teaches you about... Your, the stuff you carry around without really understanding that it's not necessarily um, not necessarily something you need to keep. You, I suppose what you learn is what to keep, what to throw away, something like that. And of course, freedom for for my generation in particular. I think the the notion of freedom, the importance of freedom, was just everything. Um, and there was a, a quote that I like very much, and I might even have said it myself. It might be my quote, I don't remember. Um, <laughs> there's no such thing as too much freedom, only too little courage. And it's such a good thing to live by in all areas of life. So in what, in what other ways has the nomadic lifestyle enriched your life, or how could it enrich our lives? And what is the relationship between a nomadic life mm. and a meaningful one? Oh, gosh. A nomadic life and a meaningful one. Um, well, I would imagine you could have a nomadic life and it wasn't very meaningful. Um, I think meaning is something we have to work at all the time. I mean, my view of existence is that it is inherently meaningless and part of our job as 
human conscious beings is to imbue it with meaning of some sort. But of course that can take you up some terribly blind alleys. Um, um, the reason I, I'm fascinated with the idea of how human beings move is that there are certain things that nomadism mitigates against and that is the accumulation of goods. You have, if you're moving all the time, you have to be flexible. Um, you have to be able to adapt to situations that may not suit you or that may confront you or that may um, challenge all the things you thought you believed in. It turns you into a good diplomat because you're constantly dealing with difference. And in the nomadic cultures that I've had anything to do with, it seems to me that they they often, not always, but often embody all the humanist values. And I've actually written about that in the, um, the Black Ink essay. Um, do you want to read the section that you had? Yeah, I could do that. Ready for us, because I think it's pertinent all right, to I'll this conversation. So I sort of... I was... Um, the point of this essay was to... Really, it was about the relationship between the sorts of values that gather around um, agriculture and the sorts of values that those values replaced. Um, so there's just a little paragraph on what I thought those values were. What are the qualities that nomadic cultures tend to encourage? And I do say tend here. It seems to me that they are the humanistic virtues the world is approached as a series of complex interactions rather than simple oppositions, connecting pathways rather than obstructive walls. Nomads are comfortable with uncertainty and contradiction. They are cosmopolitan in outlook because they have to deal with difference, negotiate difference. They do not focus on long-term goals so much as continually accommodate themselves to change. They are less concerned with the accumulation of wealth and more concerned with the accumulation of knowledge. The territorial personality, opinionated and hard-edged, is not revered. Tolerance, which accommodates itself to things human and changeable, is. Theirs are Aristotelian values of practical wisdom and balance. Adaptability, flexibility, mental agility, the ability to cope with flux. These traits shy away from absolutes and strive for an equilibrium that blurs rigid boundaries. And I think that's sort of what we're all trying to get towards. You know, it's in our nature to want to freeze things and solidify things. But the more one can understand that the entire world is nothing but flux and we are nothing but flux, and the more we can relax into understanding that, I think the better we are as citizens and sort of in relation to ourselves also. There's a question here. I'm not sure it might be too literal in terms of what you're talking about, but... How do we stay open and free and nomadic in sensibility when society normalises and expects a particular mm. kind of lifestyle? Mm. It's terribly difficult. I mean, it's, 
it's not a something you can just do, you can decide to do and then do, it's a process. And every day we're confronted with, well, with the difficulties of life and having to deal with these very rigid systems that, in a sense, we're trapped inside. But obviously the more we think about it, really deeply think about it, and read, um, and talk to each other about it, and try to find ways of turning these strict, rigid structures and make them more fluid and more humane, then that's the process, it seems to me. It's not something you can just... You just don't... You don't get it given it. You, it's a process. It's a job. It's work. It's work. And we just... Segway, but not a segue. We were talking mm. before about how we've been, I've been reading the book Sapiens. Yeah. Oh, terrific. Everyone should read yeah, Sapiens. Read it? Anyone read it here? In the audience? Yeah, it's a pretty amazing yeah. sort of story of humanity and mm. how we've moved across continents and well, he's also <laughs> Yes. Well, he's also quite... Um, he sees agriculture as a huge mistake um, or a trap. You know, humans are very good at um, doing something that seems to work for now. We don't think... We're not very good at thinking ahead at the implications. And... Um, and it, it's a love. It's a really wonderful book. But we were talking about whether you we have to turn back the clock to save ourselves. Like, how do we reach back into ancient cultural knowledge and awareness of how we might be in the world more collaboratively, mm. more kindly, more respectfully, both to the ecology and mm. to one another? Do we have to turn back the clock? It's well, not, we can't. No. I mean, there's that. Um, <laughs> that old chestnut. <laughs> That's that. And, you know, um, the last thing I would romanticise is um, pre-modern life. It was tough. You know, there was no anaesthetic. So it's not that I'm saying that we can ever go back or should go back. But if we look at systems of thought that are based around those values... The economy of nomads allows for those, for the heightening of those values above other sorts of values. Where we are in the world now, we have access to so much information. It's not as if we have to sort of go back to a primitive lifestyle to be able to get that information and think it through and come up with new ways of being in the world, some sort of syncretic vision. Um, so, no, I'm certainly not saying that we should chuck out, you know, um, all the good things that, that did come out of agriculture, obviously. But in terms of value systems, I think that's where we can gain such a lot from really listening to those previous ways of being in the world, and particularly with environmentalism. So, for example, when I was travelling with the nomads in India, they wanted very much to have access to education for their daughters, for good medicine, um, all of the things that really should be everybody's by right, but they didn't want to give up their lifestyle in order to have those things. And the problem with governments is gov governments don't like nomads. You can't tax them. They're always sort of disappearing. You can't have power over them. You can't control them. Um, and I think 
that an, another reason why why those sorts of cultures should be encouraged to continue the way they want to is that they're a great symbol of freedom. Whether they're free or not is sort of beside the point. They are a symbol of freedom, of being independent and able to cross boundaries and borders. And it's very important that those real cultures are still still embody those ways of being. And um, when you think about it, 10,000 years ago, all cultures were nomadic, all, all humans were nomadic. And the agricultural revolution has succeeded very well because now I think it's 0.001% of the population is nomadic. And if that disappears as a way of being and a way of thinking about the world and a way of thinking about resources and about each other, then we've lost this very potent, very powerful symbol about how humans can be and be different. So it seems like surrender is an important part of the conversation um, that we're having and the ability to accept that things are out of our control and we need to welcome that in a bit more. When have you had to surrender? If you can, <laughs> I'm sure many times the tide oh, of your life. So and, many and times. <laughs> and, of course, it's always difficult because it's our nature to want to cling and, you know, to make things... Um, Predictable. We can't bear not knowing what's going to happen in five minutes because actually it's quite dangerous not knowing what's going to happen in five minutes. So we're, you know, we're um, evolutionarily designed to want to fix things and want to be certain. But that is not how nature works. It is simply not how nature is. And so philosophies that have developed around that understanding that it is not how nature is seem to me to have a better handle on how to be in the world. And, of course, you know, we're not all Buddhist monks. We're not going to um, suddenly overcome these um, native, inherent ways of being in the world, nor should we. But to keep coming back to the reality, um, to sort of struggle with life and then come back and realise that actually it's all flux. I think these are very healthy marks to make in one's own life and and culturally. I'm not quite sure how you do that culturally, but for me, so for example, I, at one point in my life I read a lot of Buddhist texts, sort of classic Buddhist texts, and I found that enormously helpful to me in just learning how to relax into my own life a bit better um, and to let go of some of that anxiety of constantly having to fix and and solidify and control and just let it go a bit. Um, I think it allows humans to evolve simply a better way of being in the world and with each other. Have you ever been too comfortable being in a state of flux? Have you ever thought, I should have put... That's actually that's my four-year-old. His. I just need to flag <laughs> that that might get louder. <laughs> but we're totally cool with being in a state of flux. Absolutely. We're so cool with it. We're communally cool with it. Yeah. Um, and he can come up on stage. Yeah, if he, he wants. might. Yeah. Um, <sighs> um, <laughs> I must add here that, you know, it's very easy for me to say all these things because I've never had children. 
And of course, we all know that once you have children, stability is what they require. And it's, mm. um, you know, but even then, I'm sure that the principles apply. Mm. Well, yeah, because like my permanent state is a state of flux. <laughs> <laughs> and yes. surrender is my middle name. There you go. <laughs> Indeed. But like, I totally dig your version. <laughs> Late at night with a glass of whiskey. <laughs> um, but, but did you think that on, along the journey? I, I mean, it's true what you said about children and that primal need to nest and burrow and mm. be safe. And, and be safe, and, yes, and, and provide have, safety. Yeah. Have continuity yeah. despite it all being an mm. illusion to some degree. Yes. and. Oh, of course. And I have been to mountains in Bhutan and climbed the highest heights and gone to the monastery built in the 11th century and met the monks and thought, mm. I'm saying this out loud. I can't believe I'm saying this out loud. But I did think, dude, you don't know about surrender. Because, you know, he, like a monk on a mountain, wasn't who I needed to turn to. No, quite. For the to guidance. Know how to deal with children first start. <laughs> well, <laughs> yes, that is true. <laughs> um, but, oh, I, but, I, but I think... I'd like to see his equanimity looking yeah, after a Yeah, totally. That was actually what I was thinking. Mm. I was like, chuck a couple of my children in this room and yeah. it will not be much mm. Um, mm. happening. <laughs> um, <clears throat> I love you, Leo. He's <laughs> hearing everything I say. Um, but more that what you're talking about I completely relate to and tracks I understood because it's a part of human nature. It doesn't go away, that need to be free. Free. But I, mm. I reckon even more so, if I think about it, that need to be deeply, truly who we really are. Well, I think that was probably the the impulse behind it. You know, I said of pulling myself together, of making an individual out of these um, extremely unprepossessing bits and pieces. Um, and it did work for me. There was a, there was a time on that journey, um, again, I hadn't been expecting it, but I was very lucky to have experienced it, it was after I'd been travelling with the old man, I don't know how many of you know this, but I'd spent a month with an old Aboriginal bloke and that had sort of formed the heart of the journey for me. And then afterwards I had a month on my own in this quite difficult part of, you know, physically difficult. But something happened to me during that month and the hard wiring just got changed. It really... I don't think I've ever quite come back from, from it. And I tried to explain it in the book. Um, I kept. I was very careful to stay to keep away from the idea of mysticism, or because it was just reality. It's just what the mind does in that situation. It's just very straightforward. But it was a sort of change of consciousness, if you like. And I'm sure it was partly from being on my own and from walking every day and just being in that extraordinary expanse of desert. And the irony was, or the paradox was, that it was the furthest I've ever been literally from other human beings, but the closest 
and most connected I've ever felt to the world, to other beings, to, to what is. And it was something to do with truly in the gut understanding that we are all part of a net and that we are connected whether we like it or not. That's just how it is. And having that sensation, has sta- it hasn't stayed with me as a clear memory, but it stayed with me as a knowing that that's sort of the best way to be. Um, and it's incredibly difficult, obviously, in this world where we're, the whole world is about distraction. That's what it's, it seems to be all about. Um, and if there are moments even when we can get outside of that and really return to who we are and return to this sense of connectedness, of, of really being connected, like understanding that we really, really are connected... It's not sort of dominoes one after the other. It's a sort of net of dominoes, if you like. I don't know if that's relevant to the topic, but but it's sort of in the same area or the same category of coming back to fundamental values and ways of facing reality where we're not constantly distracted uh, from what is essentially an uncomfortable truth, which is everything is flux. Does that make sense? Yes. <laughs> um, it's relevant to everything. Yes, I wish I could remember it clearer. It would come in very handy. I think it's very handy for all of us that you've had the experience. Yes, maybe. I hope so. And told us about it. Well, I assume that we all have access to, I mean, obviously we're not going to go out and spend a month alone in a desert in order to get there. You'd be really dumb if you did. But that those ways of... That it's really very important that we try and find ways in this culture, in this sort of crazy world, to remember that it's there, that it's possible, and that it belongs to all of us. You know, it's not a... It's not just for monks and nuns. It's for all ordinary suffering folk. (laughs) You said you you wanted to stay away from mysticism when you Mm. talked about that. Mm. Why? Uh, I mistrust the idea, I suppose, that there's something behind... It seems to me that life and matter and reality is so utterly extraordinary, is so weird, um, that to pose an even weirder thing behind it, (laughs) I don't need it. And also, you know, I am um, passionately interested in science. I think um, that we're all rather ignorant about science, actually. We need to be more up up to the mark with what's going on in various scientific fields. I love it because it's it's like true wonder. Yes, true true wonder. Curiosity. Yes. Without making shit up. Yes, exactly. Like to try and not be afraid of that. Exactly. And and in in fact, it is, I think one of the reasons I love science and the rigour of science is that it is probably the best tool that we have for facing reality as it is. Um, Just as Buddhism 
possibly of the great philosophies is the best one we have for facing reality as it actually is and not telling us ourselves stories that help us escape and go into fantasy or the big god or whatever, that it really is the responsibilities right here with us. But I... It's you know it's it's murky and and wonderfully complex territory because some people are, we're going way off reservation here but some, so for some the conversation around God and mysticism is is around the experience you had not having language for it it being so big and vast and magical a possibility so it's it's an it's an interesting way that you frame it. I suppose in in being cautious around that word, I think the idea of mysticism is that it takes it it takes it out of the realm of the ordinary and therefore mm. what is accessible to everybody. Mm. And whether you're an atheist or a believer or anything else, that way of being in the world, of being in reality, of being plugged in, is available to you. For me personally, I, I'm an atheist. That's but I, it, it, it's that's sort of irrelevant, really. I don't think that mm. m- matters. Mm. Um, and whatever the mystical states are, they are states of mind, and therefore they're there for everybody. So, how much do you listen to your instincts, and how much do you follow your rational mind? Well, instincts are great, but they can be so wrong. <laughs> Um, well, I like to think that I listen to my rational mind, but probably I'm much more led by instinct than I realise or than I know. But I, I strive, I, do, I, I try to use my mind to think through my own instincts and emotional responses to things. And perhaps that's just a product of age, but I don't believe my emotions so so well as I used to. Emotions lie. I'm very glad we have them and they are, you know, they're wonderful things to have emotions. It's the colour of life. But they can lead... It's very good. So it's great to have the emotion, which is the colour, but then we've also got this wonderful tool, which is self-reflection and going, hang on a sec. Is that really real? Is that true? Um, do I really believe that? Um, so, of course, the two things have to go hand in hand. Gee, we're getting into deep territory, aren't we? <laughs> um, I, well, I like to think that I am a rational being, but I'm very glad that I'm an emotional being. Do you still walk? You know, the terrible... Life is so cruel. Um, I have a bung knee. I have to get a new knee. But then I think, how lucky am I to live in this era when they have such things as new knees? <laughs> so come October, I'm going to have a whole new, fresh knee and I'm going to be walking like you wouldn't believe. I think if anyone deserves a new knee... <laughs> That's right. But, you know, of course, I, of course I would have to have a new knee. Yeah. You know, after that, of course that's what would happen. (laughs) But anyway, yes, I do feel very lucky that I can get a new knee and, yes, I do intend to walk a great deal because, in fact, the last few years 
you know, in coming back to Australia and setting up a home and doing all those things, the walking has fallen off a bit. And I do think walking and philosophy go mm. hand in hand. Um, there's something happens to your mind when you're walking. Two questions on that. Mm. Where do you walk or how do you walk when you've got a bung knee? I mean, how do you, you, Robin, mm. find your nourishment and your meditation and how do you journey when you can't physically? Yeah, it's hard. it really has been quite um, challenging um, because I so took it for granted. My mobility was just so, it's who I am. And to suddenly be held up by something, ooh, I didn't like that much. Um, but, you know, on the other hand, I can still garden and I can travel in my head. Um, and indeed, of course, you know, part of the process of getting older is dealing with all of that, not for sissies. Hmm. Um, <laughs> so, uh, you know, I'd, I'd say another important, very important aspect of thinking philosophically, if you like, is preparing for our own deaths and how how we do that. I mean, it's such a sort of banal thing, but probably the biggest thing any of us are going to have to face. So, so I find getting older absolutely fascinating and sort of hilarious, terrible and funny. Um, what thoughts have you had about death? Well, I oscillate between just unspeakable dread and thinking, listen, millions of people have done it, it can't be that hard. <laughs> But I would like to, I mean, I'm being flippant, but I would like to prepare for my death. I would like to prepare myself um, to be able to confront it with full conscious knowing. I suppose that's, that's what I would like. Um, uh, you know, uh, we're coming into an era when, hopefully, when death is not such a painful, physically painful experience. Um, so again, we're very lucky to live in this era where even such a grand thing as death can be confronted without too much physical pain to distract us from the process, I guess. But yes, I think um, growing towards one's death is a very sensible thing. Spooky, though. Mm. In what ways are you still testing the boundaries of who you are? Sometimes I take a break, but most of the time it is a test, I think. It's um, because, and I don't, I assume that everyone is like this, but for me, life is just so improbable. I mean, it's just so totally improbable and mysterious and full of wonder. and. And I'd love to live till I'm 120. I don't care if I'm an eyeball on a pillow. As long as I can get more of the story. Because it's just so extraordinary and remarkable and weird. And, and we never stop learning. 
um, it's one of the great gifts that I that I've got is this love of learning and I know that until I die I'll be reading and thinking and wondering and struggling and going up and down and being engaged in life however ghastly it is at times um, it's what a trip really really what a trip have you always been like that? I think I have always been like that, yes. Well, look, you know, this. Um, my mother suicided when I was little and I think that that... And it wasn't so much her death but something that happened... I've been trying to write about it in this mem memoir I'm writing. Terribly difficult to write about. Um, I must have been about 12 and I had this sort of nihilistic vision. I sort of understood that there was no solid ground anywhere and that th that there was no such thing as a solid entity person, no such thing as a solid object tree. All was just this chaos of energies. And, and in a sense, overcoming the nihilism of that of that vision has given me tremendous fuel in my life. So, you know, however unlucky it was, it was also very lucky. How did you overcome it? Well, by thinking and reading and listening to what other people have... Uh, and, of course, by... Um, and by throwing myself into situations where mm. I have to pull myself together, I have to be there. So, yes, it's sort of... Um, study, I guess, is what I'd say. Study. S study of what other people have done, but also putting myself in situations where I have to grow. What does the next chapter for you look like? Well, I think being a sedentary person is looking like how it might be. I love how you talk about <laughs> that, the way we talk about the nomadic life. Well... Well, it's sort of, it, it is very demanding being um, in one place and having to sort of root yourself in a place and, um, you know, I'm having to accept change in things like my garden. You cannot control a garden. Um, so that's a sort of life lesson as well, just trying to deal with having a garden. Um, so I don't know, look, I don't know. I've, when I, you know, at the moment I'm very taken up with writing a book and when that's done I have no idea really I have no idea Robin you're wonderful I think it's time to open up for your questions thank you Robin um, how different do you think your journey with camels might have been if you were blogging en route and <laughs> constantly feeding an audience frenzy well exactly I mean, I've often said, you know, people say, would you ever do such a thing again? And, and the point is that that era when what I did was possible is completely gone. I mean, these days it's pretty much illegal to get lost. And, that one, and I think I just caught the cusp of it, of being able to go underneath the radar. Um, it had its difficulties, you know, the cops in Alice Springs didn't want me to go, they tried, you know, so there are all those sorts of blocks and barriers, but I didn't have the GPS, the satellite phone, the blogging, the constant sort of 
gnawing like rats um, of people needing to, needing to know, needing to know, needing to know. <laughs> so I think anyone wanting to do such a journey now would face a whole completely new, new species of problem. And one of the problems they'd face is not being allowed to get lost. <laughs> There's one question over there. Hi, Robin. Hi. Um, I noticed in your book that you talked about yourselves and how they, uh, how you know, part, different parts of you reacted to different situations. In tracks, you mean? Yeah. Yeah. And I'm, I'm wondering how those different parts of yourself, yourselves, have evolved over time and how you've come to see the gifts of parts of you that uh, might not be as you know, accepted in society, but are part of us all? Well, frankly, there's so many Robin Davidsons out there that I lose count, you know, I can't keep control of them all. It's a very complicated question to answer because, you know, the self is a slippery beast. And, I mean, self-deceit is just such a, um, such a huge part of the human mind um, so I think, as I said, what I try to do with those bits of myself that either I don't like or other people don't like um, is just look at them and try and work out um, to what extent I need them, to what extent they're really part of me, um, to what extent they're cultural sort of memes. But it's a full-time occupation, you know, keeping keeping that rational over-self, keeping the other bits of you honest by that rational over-self, I guess. I mean, that's the other thing that, that um, you know, I've made such huge, humongous um, mistakes. Um, so it's not like it's easy. It's not easy. Um, I just believe in the process. And once you've got that as an idea or as an ideal, then you find ways of, of keeping yourself honest, I guess. I mean, I did, as I said before, I found Buddhist philosophy very useful for that because it's, it's cold comfort. Um, it doesn't let you off the hook if you study it properly. Um, I mean, there's lots of aspects of Buddhism that, I don't, that aren't pertinent to me, but, but that willingness, that courage to look at reality as it is and look at the self really objectively is a, is a, a fantastic um, skill to try to develop. Reluctantly, Robin, we have to close this evening, but it has been an immense honour and on behalf of all of us here, thank you so much. Very, thank you. Really lovely. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Dumbo Feather Podcast. And thank you to the School of Life for co-hosting this event with us. And of course, to Robin for sharing your incredible wisdom. This edited conversation was produced by our digital editor, Lizzie Martin, and the music you hear is by Dennis Liu. Stay tuned for our next conversation or hear it first by subscribing to the Dumbo Feather podcast on your favourite podcast app.
For more conversations with extraordinary people, subscribe to Dumbo Feather at dumbofeather.com. We deliver worldwide.